You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 626 for September 20th, 2023. On this episode, pianist Chris Davis. Members of the Jazz Session also get This I Dig of You, the Patreon bonus show on which I ask the guest from the main show to talk about something non-musical that is bringing them joy. Chris talks about cooking. You can hear the bonus episode by becoming a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. You'll also get early access to every episode of the show and occasional behind-the-scenes info or other bonus material. Plus, for every episode, I choose one Patreon supporter to name as the sponsor of that episode. This episode was brought to you by Jason Linnell, who's been supporting this show since the earliest days of membership, long before the Patreon days. Thanks so much, Jason. Chris Davis is making her second appearance on the Jazz Session. She was on episode 290 in July of 2011. You can find that interview in the archives at thejazzsession.com. Her new album is called Live at the Village Vanguard. Here's the opening track. Davis, welcome back to the Jazz Session. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. It's really great uh, to have you here. It has been a very long time, uh, not through any fault of yours, but more through fault of mine. Uh, I'm realizing this year, it seems like on the Jazz Session that I seem to be having a lot of people kind of who were on a decade ago and have done a million things in the interim. And I have no way to catch up unless these episodes are seven hours long. <laughs> so uh, we're just going to do the good Buddhist thing and stay in the present and um, talk about the new album Live at the Village Vanguard, uh, which is on your own uh, label, which we'll talk about toward the end. But uh, I've really just been loving this record. I, I think it sounds so exciting and so fun. And uh, there's so much to listen to. Each time I listen to it, I hear some new thing. Um, so I guess I just want to start by saying, you know, in in my brain, at least, recording an album at the Vanguard, at least it was kind of a 
I don't know, like a, a rite of passage or a laurel for a jazz musician or something. And I'm curious in 2023, if it still feels that way and if it feels that way to you. Yeah, definitely. Definitely feels like a rite of passage. I mean, that's something that, you know, of course I grew up listening to all the live at the village Vanguard albums and Coltrane and Belevins and, you know, just go down the list. And, um, and then of course, when you're there, you're seeing all the pictures of the artists that have played there and, I moved when I moved to New York in 2001. Um, I was there all the time, so it you know feels like um, it's very special, sacred, spiritual place. And um, to have the opportunity to play and also record is just you know such an honor. Um, so yeah, I'm very excited about the album. So for this uh, recording, you got the band back t- together from uh, a previous record, and you've added one person to it, um, Julian Lodge. And I'm just I'm curious about uh, what this particular combination of musicians allows you to do. How you had the idea to put this particular band back together? Uh, anything you'd like to say about kind of getting these folks together for this recording? Yeah, sure. Um, so in 2019, or it came out in 2019, but um, I think we recorded it in 2018. I put a group together called Diatom Ribbons. And um, I had met Terry Lynn Carrington a few years before that. And she asked me to play in some of her um, projects and also um, in a tribute project to the late Jerry Allen. Um, and so I met her and Val Genty and Esperanza Spalding. And I was starting to play with them regularly. and developing this friendship and community with them. And I thought, oh, it would be nice to, you know, they didn't know a lot of the improvisers from Brooklyn that I had played with, like Tony Malaby and Trevor Dunn and Chess Smith. And I thought it would be really cool to like create a project where they meet for the first time and we find a way to make some music together. And I'd write some music, some pieces to kind of, you know, facilitate that interaction. And um, so that's what happened with my album, Diatom Ribbons, um, that came out in 2019. And so this is an extension of that um, release. And I should mention on Diatom Ribbons, we had quite a few guest artists. So there was um, Nels Klein and Mark Rebo and uh, Tony Malaby, as I mentioned. Um, but the core group was really Terry and uh, Val Genty and, and Trevor Dunn. Um, so that quartet has functioned as, you know, the main quartet that I've been working with over the fa- uh, past few years. And for the Vanguard, I thought it would be really nice to add Julian. We've played together in a duo format um, many times. And um, I just recorded for his new album and he's on mine. And we just have a nice musical relationship and friendship, too. And um, so I'm super happy that he did the week and we got it documented. And he just sounds so beautiful on it. And I think you bring something really unique and fun to the project. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful to him for, for doing that. Thank mm-hmm. you. 
It was interesting to me when you said, you know, they didn't know some of the Brooklyn improvisers that you were playing with. And to me, uh, you know, with the world of jazz sometimes seems very, very small, you know, like uh, there's a hundred people and everybody knows one another, but it is larger than that. And sometimes even like all of the names of the people that you listed that they might not know are kind of names that I know super well. Like they're all of those people are people who've been on this show, for example. And yeah, so to think that two camps of what to me are people operating in the exact same small world at roughly the same level wouldn't know each other is interesting. It's it's kind of cool in a way that jazz still has some pockets, like some geographic pockets. Yeah, totally. In New York, I mean, when you go, you know, when I go to Seattle, it's like everybody, all the musicians know each other because the scene is very small, but New York is still so big and there's still so many artists coming in and coming out all the time. You can't really keep tabs on who's who and you know who's friends with who's playing with who um on that grand of a scale so it's um yeah it is that's one of the great things about new york is that you know there's there's sort of no limit um and then finding these bridges you know of of, uh i don't know for, for these folks to play together was you know was really a cool experience so i wanted to ask about the um the fact that you had a week at the <clears throat> Vanguard and then you were able to record this at the end of that week. Um, first of all, that sounds quite luxurious from a recording standpoint, given that so many jazz albums, you know, are, are made between the morning and the evening <laughs> and uh, with no other, no other days right. involved. <laughs> um, so that seems very cool. But I, I'm also curious, you know, even though you had a lot of time uh, playing with, well, with all of these musicians, um, and most of them in as a band even i'm curious how over the course of that week things evolved and uh you know if the recording day felt different musically speaking than than day one for example um well i should maybe just go back and talk about that album diatom ribbons because when we recorded it it was a as i mentioned it was a first meeting of these various artists and so this project this recording was very different in that we had the same performing in the same space every night, um, playing the same set, the same order of tunes, um, and then recording, you know, the last two gigs, basically. So it was, I mean, it's just nice to have the space to explore the music and, and kind of go through some different journeys with it. And so the recordings that you're hearing are like, you know, they're midstream, they're mid journey. Um, and we've already been through a few mountains and, and hills before we got to, you know, the spaces that we landed on for this recording. So, I, I mean, I, to me, it feels more comfortable to work that way where you're, you're taking a band on the road, you're like workshopping the music, getting the band is getting comfortable with the material and each other, and then you record. Um, so this process was much more familiar um, than, you know, this sort of like, okay, we've got, 30 minutes to learn this tune and <laughs> let's let's uh, record hit the record button which is what the first album was and had you before the vanguard how much time had this band had to play together to even just to prepare for the vanguard is that a was that a thing that people are still able to do no we just we rehearsed um like the day of like the tuesday morning and that's that's uh, yeah i was gonna say that's amazing it's also like it's the world we live in now i guess but 
<laughs> yeah, and you know, when you have when you know you have a bunch of dates and sets coming up, you kind of feel like okay, we're, we'll we'll figure it out. Sometimes uh, rehearsal is overrated. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's very fair, actually. You're yeah, Welcome you're not like a true jazz musician. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think a few episodes ago, well, it'd be more now, but uh, Stephen Bernstein was on, and he was talking about how you know everything on this new record is like the first take or the second take. He was like, I, I don't want to rehearse with the band. I just want to go in, do it, and stop. I'm curious, obviously, as the person who put the band together and the music together, were there moments of surprise for you on night one and then throughout the week? Did did you hear things in the music or did things happen in the music that you hadn't predicted um, or hadn't, you know, hadn't planned to be there, for example? Well, I think part of it was just being in that space, you know, and like everyone says, like, oh, it's such a unique space you know, to play in and like hear the, the piano in that space that reflects those recordings back to you, you know, and all those those special moments I had, you know, seeing so many great bands um, living in New York for 20 years. And so that totally happened. And then I, I got distracted <laughs> for a second. I was like, oh, gosh. And it was kind of like that thing when you know someone like really that you really respect this is in the room, like listening to you play. And you're just like, I have to just forget that that person is there. Like, I can't think about it. I just have to do my thing. And it was a little bit like that, you know, just, sure. I recognize this sound, but <laughs> just stay focused on the music and, and, you know, having Val there, like never heard a DJ at the Vanguard. So having a Val and her doing her thing with her, um, with her turntables. And it, it also just took me out of that kind of moment like okay this is a new thing and you know let's just move forward <laughs> can you uh, you know i think there will probably be some number of people who listen to this who've never seen the inside of the village vanguard can you just say something more about the sound and the space and and what it's like from your perspective as well you've been both a performer and a listener yeah i mean if you're standing on the stage looking at it at the audience it's kind of a v-shape um so the stage is um like up in the, you know, small part of the V and then it kind of radiates out for the audience, but wherever you sit, it, it sounds different. I like to sometimes sit in the back cause I, <laughs> I think a lot of musicians like to sit in the back there. Um, it sounds good back there, but it's always nice to sit in different places. So you can see, you know, what's going on. You've, you've got different vantage points and viewpoints and the sound is, it's kind of, it's hard to explain cause it's kind of dry, but then it's also, it's just intimate, you know, when you're with the band in that small space, you're squished together, 
you know, it feels like somebody's living room. It's very uh, comfortable and intimate. And that's, that's really what I, what I love about it as a listener and as a player. I wanted to talk more about Val because um, one of the things that really distinguishes this, as you said, from any other record that I've ever heard from the Vanguard is the presence of a DJ. And for folks, people are hearing samples of this as we're as we're talking and so getting some idea of Val's work. But I think one for me, one of the most enjoyable parts of it is that the the spoken word segments are in some cases, like in dialogue with the music or a commentary on them or funny. Um, I mean, there's like, there's moments that make you laugh on this record. And so, yeah, I'm curious how the two of you kind of arrived at, at those things, uh, what was going to be used, how, et cetera, et cetera. Cause it's, that's still kind of a magical mystical world to me um, of that kind of DJing. I really don't know much about it. So yeah, I'd love to hear anything you want to say about it. When Val and Terry and I started working together, I had a week at the Stone and um, I asked them if they want to play an improvised set. And actually, that was the first time Terry had ever played a whole set of improvised music. And Val, you know, brought a lot to that experience. And she's she's drawing from all of her sound banks, whether it's um, some spoken word or percussive sounds or like found sounds in nature. So I sort of saw possibilities there. And then she was also working with Terry and using clips from Jerry Allen um, for these Jerry Allen tribute concerts of things that Jerry had said that were inspirational. And I thought, oh, you know, I've never written for a DJ. And um, how am I going to make something that's like personal, that's like a language that she can mold in this situation? Um, And so one of the things was... uh, just to take clips of artists that I really love and respected. And Cecil Taylor had just passed away at the time. And I heard this wonderful clip of him being interviewed by Marin McPartland um, on piano jazz. And I thought, oh, this is cool. Like, you know, I, I want to pay tribute to him, but I don't want to like copy his sound or, you know, his language in any way. So maybe I can pay tribute by, you know, including his words and his sentiment about what music meant to him. And so that's the first track on the album, Diatom Ribbons. And so Val's function in the group now is um, partially to take these clips of interviews and things that are meaningful to me and and use them in different ways. Some of them are blanket statements that go over top of the music, and some of them are more interactive, like on the the piece Parasitic Hunter. She uses some of uh, Stockhausen's a clip of him talking about his intuitive music, which is more like kind of instructional, like play play to the sound of your you know thoughts or your your heart <laughs> or these things, and and so it's kind of a call to us, and we can re- choose to respond or not respond, you know, rhythmically um, in those moments. Um, so it's just like again, it's just for me, I'm always experimenting with with these different elements and using spoken word and, and interviews were a way to kind of see if, if it, how it affects the music and the way that we improvise together as a group, if it changed something. And uh, I think it did. It was, it was, there was a lot of new stuff in there for me, um, including the humor element that you, you mentioned. Some people are, <laughs> they say, Oh, you're the funniest person I know. <laughs> and of course I have this like the biggest compliment, you know, but i I feel like it's kind of hard to express that in music sometimes. And um because of the spoken word, I could use other people's jokes or, you know, kind of funny mentality and like bring it into into the music. And that was really a special thing. 
to realize that it could work that way. Yeah, I think in instrumental music, humor either tends to be very in your face, like slapsticky kind of humor, or yeah. it's a joke shared only by the people on the bandstand. Right. And I think in some cases it tends to separate the musicians from the audience. You know, if somebody right. plays something and somebody else laughs on the bandstand, but you don't know why they would be laughing, it, it kind of creates distance. Whereas I feel like what's happening in this recording, and I wasn't in the shows, but it feels very much like the kind of thing that would draw people in and and cause them to focus and listen and feel like a part of it. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to give away any of the, those moments, but I'm glad to hear that you had that experience because it's. I think it is more of a communal humor, humorous element to the music. So that's good to hear. Let's take a break from the interview so I can remind you that you can support what I do and help keep the archives freely available for everyone by becoming a member for just $5 a month. You'll get a bonus episode with every regular show, plus early access to every episode, additional bonus shows, behind-the-scenes updates, and more. You can become a member today at thejazzsession.com join. I write press releases and artist bios and liner notes for musicians, and I've done that for many of the folks you've heard on this show. You can see samples of my work at cranewrites.com. Check out the samples and get in touch. Now back to the episode. See, this music is from another dimension. And uh, it really would affect people, you know. In Chicago, I was accused of hypnotizing people and all kinds of things. But it's not that. It's really, uh, you know, you have food for thought, and that's for your mind. But this is real soul music. It's not the kind you dance by. It's for your spirit. And your spirit will listen, you see. Which means, in a sense, the, all the earth parts of you will be blacked out in your spirit and you listen to get some soul food. Most people, they take the soul food as some, uh, you know, eat, but that's for your body. This is soul food, it's music. The soul likes beauty. It, 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 uh, let's talk a little bit about the music. Um, obviously, there's uh, music of yours, but there, other people appear as well. There's uh, Wayne Shorter, Ronald Shannon Jackson, uh, Jerry Allen, who we mentioned. Uh, I'm just curious about, yeah, putting together the repertoire for this band and, and how you chose what you chose. Um, it kind of came step by step through various various projects. Um, I had a, I went down to t Texas to play with Craig Taborn for a two piano concert um, with the group Octopus that we have. A producer that I work with often, David Breskin, um, was producing the concert and asked if we would transcribe a Ronald Shannon Jackson piece um, since he's from there for the concert and incorporate it for two pianos. So, so I chose this piece, Alice in the Congo. Um, I just really love, I love the the groove element of it and the sort of freedom of the melody with the blended, you know, blending with the groove. Um, and it's there's no piano on the recordings. It's it's the decoding decoding society. It's like guitars and horns and you know rocking drums and hard hitting drums. So a unique challenge to try to incorporate that for two pianos. And after we did the concert, I thought, oh, you know, this is cool. Maybe maybe I'll try to use this in diatom ribbons somehow. Um, so I brought that in, and also the piece "Endless Columns" on the record um, was a a commission to um, write for Craig and I based on these sculptures down in the 
the modern in Fort Worth, Texas. So that was the story of <laughs> those two pieces. There was, um, I'm trying to remember what else was on the album. Oh, The Dancer was a piece that we played with Terry um, for the Jerry Allen, Jerry Allen tribute. And um, I started, during the pandemic, I bought this little keyboard called the Arturia Micro Freak, and it's like a little analog synthesizer. And I thought, oh, I've got time. Like, <laughs> I think I want to learn a little bit about synthesizers. And so it was a good introduction. Um, I started sequencing little phrases and things, and I wrote, um, I put in uh, that little melody that Jerry has on that, on the dancer. And then also I did that with um, Out to Lunch, the Eric Dolphy piece that's the precursor to the dancer on the, on the album. Um, so I'm manipulating those lines by, you know, transposing them and cha changing the speed and the texture and all sorts of things. I want to shift um, focus a little bit and uh, step away from the record for a minute. Uh, Terry Lynn Carrington was on the show uh, not too long ago, and we were talking about new standards and uh, about the Institute for Jazz and Gender Justice at Berkeley. And you were an associate program director for creative development there. And I just wanted to ask um, for your thoughts on uh, the Institute and also for some info about what you're doing there and what your role is. The, the mission of the Institute is to work towards diversity, equity, and inclusion in jazz. And um, I was just doing an interview this morning about this, that, you know, in jazz, we don't have, I mean, jazz education, there's the institution, but jazz itself, there's nothing governing any kind of regulation around hiring practices. Um, and so in addition to teaching music in the Institute, we're also incorporating the idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion as a guiding principle um, in the decisions made around um, students' artistic practice. So that's really it. And <laughs> that works its way into the, the Institute in all these different ways um, from us populating the ensembles and creating them we mostly have we mostly teach through ensembles and so the ensembles are gender balanced um, for the most part we try to create that sort of artificial experience um, for the students to um, to experience um, we also have the new standards book so we're we're bringing in um, repertoire of women composers and um, incorporating that into our teaching um, I also run an outreach program um, with the high school students from the Boston Arts Academy that's right next to Berkeley. 
um, which is a really cool thing where our students are teaching their students um, and using the curriculum and the pieces from the book um, to you know pass on um, to the next generation um, and uh, yeah that's just like a few of the projects and i'm sure you saw or heard about the installation at emerson college yeah recreated um it's really amazing you know tribute to to women and people women that have been erased from this the music scene um from jazz and so she's trying to you know bring attention to those those artists and those voices both both old and you know you new young people coming in so um there's there's a lot going on all the time and <laughs> it's it's uh it's endless work and it's it's meaningful work and uh, i feel like i'm already seeing the results um and the the shift happening uh amidst our students but also just on a broader scale because i'm often traveling and working with students in different institutions and um yeah, it feels like there's a there's a shift, you know, where things are becoming more and more equitable. Even just thinking about the very beginning of this interview, when you were listing some of the other records that were recorded at the Vanguard that you grew up listening to, which are some of the same ones I did, Coltrane, Bill Evans, that thing. It, there are a number of women's names that can be put in that list. Um, the majority of them, though, uh, are singers. Uh, singers, some who are also instrumentalists, but um, there are very few women's led groups where the woman does not sing at any point. You're, I think you're one of maybe three or four who've recorded a, a Live at the Vanguard album. So, I mean, even <laughs> the very thing we're talking about is a, a rare instance. Um, yeah, exactly. And it's it's interesting to be, I mean, I, I don't know if I often categorize myself in like, you know, the, the few um, in that way, but there's something about this recording and recognizing like, oh yeah, there's not that many instrumentalists that are women that have recorded and released an album. And of course, Jerry Allen was one of them. And, and uh, um, the first single that we released, um, The Dancer, you know, came out um, a couple couple weeks ago. And um, just to pay tribute to her because, you know, she was she was one of the, the few um, and one of the first. So it's, it's nice to be able to pay respect in that way. This album is on uh, Pyroclastic Records, which is a label that you started. In fact, this is the third Pyroclastic album on the show recently. Um, Mark Dresser's Times of Change and Ingrid Laubrock's The Last Quiet Place have also been featured in recent episodes. And uh, I'm just curious about why you decided to start a label and and how it's going. It seems like it's going well to me. but. <laughs> Yeah, it's going well. We have 29, um, we'll have 29 releases by the end of this year. Um, so it's it's going really well. Um, it started in 2016, I would say, maybe earlier. <laughs> it started with, with my album Duopoly and Octopus. Um, and as I was releasing those, I was in the process of setting up a not-for-profit um, to support the efforts of the label and and give other artists opportunities to release um, their music on the on the label. Yeah, it's it's going well. <laughs> Is there a, a, a mission, a, a, a kind of a some sort of through line of the label or a particular kind of thing you're looking for or a way that you're operating that the label is maybe filling a, a niche that other things weren't filling or some animating principle? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's meant to support artists that are making non-commercial adventurous music. Um, that's the that's the mission of the not-for-profit and the label. Um, so you know, you're you'll be hearing artists, you know, taking chances, and they, yeah, you might not hear them on Blue Note Records or you know whatever mainstream <laughs> more mainstream um, label. But that's that's sort of the purpose and the function is to give a platform for for artists to take chances. And that's what I value, you know, in my own music and my own artistic practice. And I wanted to extend that to other artists who, who value the same thing. Um, so it's, yeah, it's going well. Thanks for asking. And uh, as we're drawing to a close, I just wanted to ask you one question, which about a thing which has happened very recently as we're recording, it'll be a little further in the past um, as folks are listening to this, but uh, which is that you were just on tour um, with Dave Holland. And from the things that I saw you post on social media, it looked like it was a pretty fun time. So I'd just love to hear anything you wanted to say about that experience. Yeah, we we had a blast. Um, It was a quartet that Dave put together with Nishi Waits and Jaleel Shaw um Nishit I had played with a bunch of times but Jaleel this was my my first meeting um and Dave I'd played with a couple times um but you know I don't know if I've ever been on tour for three weeks and we just had a blast we played the same set every every night and um so we really got to go deep into the music and start to see the pieces we all contributed one piece to the um to the set and Dave had a couple tunes um but there's something about playing the music, you know, in the same order every night that it starts to become like a suite, the whole thing. <laughs> so you start to see it as this sort of bigger, like animal, you know, that you're you're dealing with. And, um, you know, Dave, Dave's the best. I mean, he's just so generous and open and, you know, he would he would make mistakes on the 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 bandstand and be like, ah, you know, and then, and then just keep going. And there was something about that, that also just freed all of us to be like, Oh, cool. Like you're trying, you're going for things and you don't care if you, you know, make a mistake or whatever. It's about the pursuit, you know, and the interaction between the four of us. And that was just like, so, um, just so refreshing and beautiful to be, you know, part of that experience that kind of mentality from from such a master. So I'm, I'm just grateful for the opportunity. My guest is Chris Davis. The new album on Pyroclastic Records is called Live at the Village Vanguard. It's been such a joy to have you back on, and I promise it will not be 13 years or however long it's been before you're <laughs> on next time. Thank you so much for taking the time. And... Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks to my guest, Chris Davis. Be sure to check out her previous episode in the archives at thejazzsession.com. Thanks also to the members who support this show and to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music and Sarah Walter for the logo. You can message me for more info about Sarah. Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. Hire him at hearchucknow.com. Follow the Jazz Session on Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram and TikTok at the Jazz Session. Take a second right now, if you would, to rate and review the show wherever you listen, and it greatly improves my ability to reach new folks. I've got a second podcast called A Brief Chat. It's also an interview show most of the time, but with no specific topic, just interesting folks talking about interesting things. 
If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcasts, my poetry, and more, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. And if you value what you just heard, become a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join, and then come back for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.